Um, is is Miller on or no? He didn't end up finishing the movie. He said. Oh, okay. Pretty sure he came home yesterday right and played on. a video game until he went to bed. Yeah, it shows that he's playing Elden Ring yeah, right no, now. I, so. I, I went into his room. The I was boy. like, you get on? He's like, no, I didn't finish the movie. I was like, did you come home yesterday and play Elden Ring? He's like, yep. And he's playing Elden Ring. I'm like, all right. Fair enough. All right, buddy hey, boy. we don't get paid to do this. No, <laughs> In fact, you're, you're he damn right. Solo. You know, edits this every week, so... I don't. I just picture you saying, we don't get paid to do this, and just Jason's feed cuts off immediately. <laughs> he just like slams, <laughs> just slams the computer shit. All right, All right. Well, I didn't. He's like, I didn't know. Oh that. yeah, I'm gonna cash. I'm gonna cash my last five years of back paychecks from Sci-Fi <laughs> right, Cross right, Section. Dang. It's literally gonna be like a fifty dollar check. Go buy a fucking Looks bed. Go check, buy so I'm literally gonna have Caroline write you a check, and then I'm gonna Venmo her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So every time I gotta pay for someone's checks, so I just use hers. Uh, Welcome back to Sci-Fi Cross Sections, a weekly podcast dedicated to everything science fiction. It's me, your nasally boy, Colin Brandon, and with me tonight is... Jason. And with us, we have a special guest, uh, friend of the podcast, uh, Matt Sokol. How you guys doing? Doing all right, man. Doing all right. This is our second attempt to record this in the last two weeks, so uh, hopefully we get it right this time. We're going to get it, even if it's a 10-minute long episode. You know we're, we're posting this something. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, we could do it. This is do it. Like that. Okay. This is all Colin gets for free. <laughs> After that, I got to start paying you fellas, right? Yep. <laughs> okay, so... Um, tonight, we were talking about the uh, hit... Uh, what was it? 2015 film, The Martian. Uh, the Martian was written by Drew uh, Goddard, uh, directed by Ridley Scott. It is starring Matt Damon, Jessica Chastain, Kristen Wiig, Jeff Daniels, Michael Pena, Kate Mara, Sean Bean, Sebastian Stan, Esco Henny, uh, Chuetel, the Geo4, uh, and then we're not going to leave them out. We also got Donald Glover, we got Benedict Wong, uh, and then a host, a whole host of other people that uh, you recognize them, but you don't know their names, but you saw them in something at some point. So, <clears throat> as I said before... Um, we did try to cover this last week, but we had technical difficulties. So you guys should already know the box office. The budget was 108 million. Uh, does anybody remember what I said what the box office was? Like 600 million, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just north of that, it was 630 million. Lot of money. Oh yeah, man. Uh, and as we know, if it doubles its budget, it is often considered a uh, you know financial box office success or whatever. Um, in this case, it's six times its budget, so that is uh, a miracle. So, um, especially for sci-fi, because um, I think we've uh, we talk about this on the cast all the time. Uh, box offices are not friendly towards sci-fi, um, especially if it doesn't have like you know that crazy high concept lasers flying around, uh, alien spaceships landing, transformers doing tuck and rolls over bridges and stuff. Like, that's what people want to pay to see. So sci-fi usually doesn't do well in the box office, but this was amazing what it did. <clears throat> and I, I don't know what you guys said why it probably was like that. I don't remember what it was. Was it just because it was like in the summertime and everyone was kind of a little more free to go see it? Or I think it came out quick, pretty quickly after the book, and the book was definitely like a smash hit pop culture-wise. I think people really caught on to the book. Um, and the story behind it being the author's, you know, kind of first crack at it. And he wrote a, you know, brilliant fact-based science fiction novel that actually did well. Um, so I think the movie came out pretty quickly after that. Plus the cast that you listed and directed by Ridley Scott. Yeah, I, I think I remember actually, uh, this is like right when we cut out last week when we tried to, uh, to, to record I think the the point being uh, kind of what Matt was saying, like you had 
a very cross-sectional blend of uh, things here, right? You have, you know, Ridley Scott. So there's people that are fans of Ridley Scott that might not necessarily be sci-fi fans. Then you have people that are fans of the cast who might not necessarily be sci-fi fans. Then you have sci-fi fans who might not necessarily be Ridley Scott fans, et cetera, et cetera. But you brought all those people together and put all those butts in seats. So I feel like that kind of coupled with the success of the book and the fact that it kind of transcended and became more of a pop culture thing, even outside of just science fiction. Um, I think you got a recipe for success there. And obviously they saw that with the box office returns. Totally. I was actually reading something just like a little quick fact and I'm missing a couple of pieces of information, but you'll get the gist. I think that it initially was turned down by a number of studios. And once they secured Ridley Scott to direct it and Matt Damon to star in it, it was like immediately greenlit. And I can't, they, I read somewhere, I can't remember who the original director and suggested lead was, but uh, it was initially not going to be made. And then this, they scrambled and got Ridley Scott and Matt Damon, and immediately somebody picked it up. Uh, the screenplay originally was by Drew Goddard. Um, it was 20th Century Fox that actually optioned the book uh, back in 2013, so like two years after this uh, book came out. And then it was um, 2015 is when the film actually uh, came out. Originally, Goddard was uh, hired to uh, write the script and direct it, um, he ended up leaving to go chase uh, potential Marvel money, which didn't end up happening. He's supposed to direct the Sinister Six movie that mm. uh, totally died in pre-production. Ooh, I think it's kind of funny because <laughs> yeah, uh, Matt Damon entered the project under the assumption that Goddard was going to write it, uh, but then uh, they approached uh, Ridley Scott over this, which was probably the smartest move they made on this entire uh, production was oh, getting yeah. Ridley Scott involved because he, I think, took it as seriously as the author did with what he was supposed to do he uh he understood the uh the assignment for sure um so yeah i mean as long as we're talking about that production side of things uh right from the get-go they kind of involved nasa in on this uh the production side of things bringing them in um making sure every single thing that they're trying to show on screen uh, makes sense and they were like when nasa scientists afterwards were talking about it they like nitpick certain things they're like yeah you know the uh a sandstorm on mars while powerful wouldn't be strong enough to do what it did and it's like okay well it is a movie but if that's what you're gonna nitpick then hell yeah so i fuck off science man <laughs> who do you think you are anyway yeah it's fiction bud science fiction right i ain't no science scientist <laughs> I actually think that's amazing because I think Andy Weir, somebody fact checked some of the equations in the book and Andy Weir like did the math or, you know, had some assistance in doing the math to make sure that a lot of the numbers that are thrown around in the book added up for real. So I think that it's, it's very commendable that when they're making the film, they kind of carried that same level of like caution and care. Like, let's not advertise something in this film that is obviously not realistic. So getting NASA involved, I think is, that's amazing. Oh, well, um, you mentioned with, with the book, uh, Weir was involved, or NASA was involved with that as well. He was calling them constantly, uh, asking them questions of like, okay, I want this. Like, how would this actually play out in, you know, in real life? And they would explain it to him and he would put it in his book. So that's why we um, haven't done anything amazing in space lately. Yeah. NASA's busy helping Hollywood <laughs> movies and <laughs> books be made. Hey NASA, it's Andy again. Um, I'm pretty sure. Just uh, call when you how do how do toasters how do toasters work in space, NASA? Uh, Thanks. Just let me know. I'm working on my next chapter. <laughs> Tentatively called yeah. the toaster. Um, yeah, the the toaster. Um, no, but I think it's you know that was like one of the big things right for for this that uh, kind of initially drew me to the book. So funny enough, I had read the book. Years ago, um, I probably read the book maybe 2014, I would say. And I, it's funny because I didn't see the movie until two weeks ago. And um, I know that like one of the, the big draws to me uh, on the book side and what I had heard a lot of my friends and family members that have read it really talk about uh, positively was that it was such a grounded take on this scenario. Uh, you know, it was it was definitely more of a hard sci-fi, uh, you know, or hard science kind of take on it where everything was realistic and everything seemed like it was, you know, a couple decades in the future at most. Uh, it was all plausible. And I thought that 
that really came through in the adaptation on screen. You know, it, right from the get-go, we're kind of in that realm of possibility as opposed to, I think like Colin said, you know, uh, laser laser guns and, you know, ships that are uh, going to, you know, speed of light or, or somewhat the speed of light in two seconds and warp drives. That, like, it, it's not that, right? It's not this, oh, terraforming Mars. It's no, it's a little habitat. It's you know, very, very feasible to where you could see a mission like this being run 20 years from now, you know, thereabouts. So uh, I really appreciated that in the book. And I thought that uh, Ridley Scott and the rest of the team did a great job kind of translating that feel to the screen. And honestly, I think that's why NASA was so excited to do, uh, well, both help with the book and then come back and help with the movie is for them, this is marketing. This is convincing the masses that hey we can do this we can go to mars um it's very feasible um i, I wouldn't say that nasa struggles uh with their budget nowadays because they still get like i think their last budget was like 21 billion dollars or something um but that pales in comparison to the budgets that nasa was used to receiving uh if we look back like during the space race and stuff um, the government was basically was just a blank check, like whatever you need, we got to beat the Soviet Union. Um, but that's kind of gone away, you know, within the last couple of decades, we don't really do much. Um, so um, I think movies like this will help push it forward for sure. It also helps to give Jeff Bezos your money because I'm pretty sure he wants to get to Mars at some point too. So, so buy the Martian from Amazon. Buy the Martian from Amazon, and uh, if you can, uh, take out an auto loan and get a Tesla. Get all <laughs> those boys uh, skyrocketing into space. Um, I guess it'd be space rocketing to space, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, so I didn't actually do this before, so I probably should just get out of the way. I'm going to say what the plot is in case anyone listening has no idea what this movie is about. When astronauts blast off from the planet Mars, they leave behind Mark Watney, Matt Damon, presumed dead after a fierce storm. With only a meager amount of supplies, the stranded visitor must utilize his wits and spirit to find a way back to survive on a hostile planet. Meanwhile, back on Earth, members of NASA and a team of international scientists work tirelessly to bring him home while his crewmates hatch their own plan for a daring rescue mission. It's the Martian. The Martian. <clears throat> okay, so um, I think right off the bat, um, if you didn't have Matt Damon at the helm of this with such a strong performance, I honestly think he was the perfect person to play this. Uh, I don't think this movie would have been as good. I mean, who who else would you put into that role that could have done it justice? Russell Crowe. No, no way. Russell but Crow. Russell no Crowe now. Yeah, yeah, okay. Russell yeah, I was going to say, Matt Damon yeah. feels very much like an everyman, so it's like, if he's like the dude that, it, it just felt very believable, like he was a guy that worked for NASA, and he was literally just doing the best he could to survive. I couldn't picture Russell Crowe doing that. No. <laughs> like, Not to no, mention, very, very dramatic. Matt Damon has all these ben, moments ben Affleck, where he's Colin. trying to keep his sanity. Um... He's kind of just being like a happy guy, even though there's no reason to be happy. I don't think Russell Crowe could have ever pulled that off. I don't even think Ben Affleck could have pulled. Ben Affleck's too no. dark and brooding. I was gonna say brooding is like the best word for it. He's just pacing in his head. It's Ben Affleck. Yeah, it's Ben Affleck, but he's wearing the Batman costume, he's, he's, and no one ever like no one ever addresses it the whole smoking, movie. He's, he's just, just walking around in this like zero gravity. Like he's just so, attempting to smoke as many cigarettes yeah. as he can. We'll throw out another like you know actor who's, you know, famous in Hollywood, will say, like, uh, Ryan Reynolds could have done, like, all the happy shit, but I don't think he could have also brought that seriousness to the role. So I, that's why I say Matt Damon was, in terms of star power, no, he was the perfect person to play that. I, I totally think so. I think that's kind of, uh, I think Matt said it, like, that's Matt Damon's big draw, right? He's every man. He's very relatable in terms of being a celebrity. You know, there's a lot of celebrities that it's hard to, 
like identify like we don't know anything about these people we just see characters that they play in you know films and tv shows and whatnot right but he seems like someone you could very easily like have a beer with and i think that serves the character because i I think we all read the book in this one right um that is the character he's very much uh you know um kind of a really smart guy obviously right he's a really smart guy to be kind of where he is in the position he is but he also is kind of a smart ass and you know there's there's those everyman qualities about him as well he's not some like detached dissociated like science guy in the book he's very relatable so i think that that was a really good piece of casting to get matt damon involved because he has that same sort of essence on the screen at least my thought, you know, in, in films I've seen him in. Totally. I think in this one in particular, too, there, there's a lot of time spent with just you and Matt Damon, you know, because he's kind of self-reporting. Like in the book, it's his journal, you know, he's logging souls in his journal or whatever. And in the movie, it's just him t- like speaking to himself, kind of like keep his sanity and report certain important events. But, you know, there's a moment in the movie where that turns and he finally does have communication. But I think if you put maybe like a weaker actor or not somebody that felt as relatable, the movie would kind of drag. Cause there's just a lot of screen time where it's Matt Damon talking to Matt Damon, just trying to report what's happening. And I think the fact, like you said, Jason, that it's somebody that I feel like I could be getting a beer with makes it very easy to watch. Cause it's almost like you would envision somebody, you know, being in that situation. And he kind of handles that very well. He does, you know, report it in a way that's digestible for the audience and not some, you know, like a room full of scientists. Totally. Yeah. And I think that also plays to what we were talking about a little bit ago, right? Like, okay, it was a financial success, you know, it was a blockbuster film. And even though it is a science fiction movie, you know, it's nominally about space and the space exploration and the space program and science people doing science things and problem solving. um, I think it's that relatability that drew a really wide audience to it. This is one of my mom's favorite movies. She loves this movie. I think my sister got the 4K Blu-ray for her for Christmas or whatever like that. And she's seen it 50 times. You know, she loves it. And she's not really like that with movies. And she's certainly not a science fiction person. But I think it's that relatability and likability of Matt Damon's character and kind of the situation he's in. And, uh, you know, that sense of kind of tension. And then how are we going to resolve this next problem that pops up, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But uh, I think that, um, yeah, just in terms of being a story, it's very relatable to a lot of different people and a lot of different kind of walks of life. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And <clears throat> while we're talking about the rest of the cast, um, honestly, I, as intense as all the stuff was that was happening on Mars, I felt like the shit that was making you anxious most of the time was actually what was happening back on earth between like Jeff Daniels and Chueto and Gia four and stuff like that. Like, you know, um, Jeff Daniels is not concerned as much about, um, was it Mark Watney? He's c- kind of concerned about the publicity side of things. Sure, it's like an image how, thing. <laughs> how, how is this going to look? Yeah. And I think that all comes back to that's kind of probably realistically what would happen. Yeah. Um, there, you know, while a lot of people will be freaking out, like we got to you know save this, there's going to be a few people there who are definitely going to be worried about how is this going to reflect upon us later and stuff like that. Yeah, the, the bureaucracy of those big uh, alphabet soup agencies, right? Yep. You know, it's definitely on one hand, I, I don't think that that's another thing with the film. Like it, it doesn't dive into that with a heavy hand. It's not like trying to be some deep analysis of, you know, bureaucracy yep. versus uh, the humanistic side of whatever, right? Saving this astronaut who, it's not his fault that he, you know, is in this situation, but, but I think it does, it does have some asides where it touches on that a little bit. Um, and it certainly does in the, the novel as well. So that, that was kind of interesting, but I thought just, uh, really on every level of casting, you know, it being such a big ensemble cast, uh, everyone's character and characterization was just really, really strong. You know, I, I thought like it's, it's easy now to go back as my test always, my litmus test is if I read a book and then I watch something that's an adaptation. Do I go back to the book and then now imagine the the character, the person that played that character in the book when I'm like reading it or thinking of it. And now I, I, I can't separate the two. Like my head canon, Mark Watney is now Matt Damon. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I think that's an, that's a great, ex- like I read the book and saw the movie almost immediately after. I want to say that there was like within the same year, you know, I finished the book and saw the movie. So I think I sat in the theater very much 
like with a picture in my head of what all these people looked like, what the Hab looked like, what the, you know, Mars looked like, what the spaceship looked like. And it was totally everything met or beat my expectation. Like it was all perfect. And I think that that's credit to the, you know, filmmakers and cast and all that. But, um, I think you had mentioned earlier that there's kind of two stories going on during the course of the film, right? It's Mark Watney and his struggles, but like you said, there's what's happening down on earth. And I think that they did a great job like running those storylines in parallel because it, while you're watching the film, one of the real, the most enjoyable parts I think is, you know, it flashes from like Mark Watney achieves some level of success on Mars and then they just totally shit right in your cereal on earth and talk about how they, you know, don't back it or, you know, disagree with, you know, the attempt. We will get, get to that. I'm sure. But the attempt to, you know, make the rescue mission and stuff like that. So you, you're like, you ride those peaks and valleys, you know, you, you want to celebrate with Mark and then, it immediately cuts back and they start talking about how terrible the idea to rescue him is. And your heart just kind of like sinks for a second. And I think that that makes it a very enjoyable movie, you know, even outside of the science fiction realm. I love the fact that those two sides are not in contact with each other. You know, what's going on with uh, on Mars, what's going on on earth. Um, Cause you know, I always, always want to compare this to uh, Apollo 13. Uh, it's very similar kind of circumstance where they're, uh, they're in space, a lot of shit's going wrong, but they're in communication uh, with Earth, right? Am I remember that correctly? Yes. Yeah, they are still. Yeah, they so, speak, like, Earth they, is trying to, like, speak, okay, yeah. this is all they got, and let's try to yeah, coach, see coach what we can work it. with with that. And yeah, coach them through it, whereas with the Martian, they're trying to figure out what he could possibly do, but they can't relay that to him. They just gotta hope that that's what he's doing. Right, yeah, it's all guessing. Yeah, that's... Pretty fantastic. Um, so one of the reasons I do like this movie is because this is what we would honestly consider like um, hard sci-fi or like a realistic sci-fi. Um, we've kind of already addressed that. Um, and I'm just going to kind of shoehorn it in here, but another you know production that's done this both in book and in television or in film was uh, the Expanse series. Uh, and I always just love to shoehorn this fact, but one time, um, James S.A. Corey and Andy Weir were sitting at a book signing, probably like a convention or something. They had, their tables were next to each other, and they just started going back and forth about their properties. And they decided, and it's canon, um, that The Martian takes place in the past of the Expanse universe. I think you, I, oh, I think you cool. told me that yeah. right around the time um, I saw it or read the book or something, Colin, but that's awesome. I think that's, that's totally it, badass. The Martian Navy actually has a ship called um what is it the the mark watney is the name of the, the ship so oh, yeah that's, cool. that's yeah. yeah that's really cool but um that's super cool i mean and, and that's kind of the thing too i feel like you know obviously i i read um the martian and i know my uh, wife jess has a few other um andy weir books that i have not read and i don't think she's read yet but um you know i haven't uh yet read i know it's sacrilege for this podcast but i haven't read the James S.A. Corey, you know, Expanse books. Uh, I will at some point, but, you know, obviously I've seen The Expanse and, and love that show. We've covered it at length here, but, you know, I think it's it's cool. There's like something to be said for that science fiction that really focuses on the plausible. You know, it, it's it's still taking a lot of those questions and those things I think we always look for on the podcast of, you know, the, the human experience and and what makes us human and kind of ties them into that science, um, that overarching kind of science uh, world, but without being overly fantastical. And there's so so much of that uh, sphere, I feel like it, it's really easy. Um, I don't mean easy in terms of like anyone can do it, obviously, right? Because we'd all be published authors. But it's, I think, easier to go fantastical when you don't have to justify what your conceit is you know if oh yeah uh space lasers and hyperdrive because we figured it out e zero element zero whatever you want to say right it's a lot more i think difficult to create a story like this that's grounded in reality because then you have to be able to back it up if you're writing a check you got to be able to you know cash it your ass has to be able to cash it right so I just think it's, uh, it, I, I commend authors that kind of go after, or, or really filmmakers, anyone, you know, um, creatives that go after this type of um, kind of grounded in reality, high concept, hard sci-fi. 
Cause I, cause I couldn't do it. So I love writing. I love, you know, being creative, but that takes a whole other level of dedication, I think, to really stick the landing there. Right. It's, I like that you, you mentioned that because I was reading an article a few years ago and it was, they were basically saying that science fiction writers, and we're talking about you know, authors, if they want to be taken seriously anymore, they have to approach what's going into their writing like that. They have to research that month much because it's not like it was 50 years ago or 60 years ago with sci-fi writers where they can just do that. They could say, well, we could do this now awesome you know it's just a plot device but those authors are usually exploring a whole other thing in terms of their literature that's not so much the science aspect the science is just a you know a device for them to tell their stories now um, i think it should almost be expected to do that and i kind of like that because first off we always make the joke but like star wars is not science fiction it's it's fantasy kind of just with this paint job of science fiction over it whereas something like star trek is really science fiction and that's like those that's the kind of shows that inspire people to like grow up and join nasa um and that's where we get like a lot of fantastic ideas that end up becoming reality like the cell phone was directly inspired by star trek you know the tablet and stuff like that the ipads everything that's all inspired by star trek um and i think it's really important for films like the martian to be made and things like the expanse to be made because that produces a we can be there someday. Like we don't have that technology yet, but it's within the realms of physics. We understand that maybe we can make that someday. So um, that's, and honestly, the Martian is so, cause it's near future, right? It's only like, yeah. it's like 20 years in the future. Yeah. So we're already seeing well, from the time are, of writing, yeah. you know, fucking landing on shit with uh, what, uh, was it SpaceX? That's the name of it. The Falcon 9. Yeah, yeah. yeah like they, they literally yeah. take off and then land that shit on like a platform in the middle of the ocean. So that's. Well, yeah, like the idea of, you know, the the uh, the craft that is basically going to slingshot astronauts uh, on these missions from point A to point B, uh, you know, and then uh, how they eventually end up rescuing Mark by slingshotting around the earth and then going back and, you know, like that, that type of stuff is, I'm sure, extremely complicated and complex. And I could never even hope to comprehend any of the math and the, you know, uh, calculations needed to make something like that a reality. But, um, smarter people than I can. And to your point, Colin, I mean, that is within the realm of possibility. Will we ever be able to develop a uh, you know, faster than light drive, or will, will we ever be able to, you know, accomplish anything like that? Maybe, but not in our lifetimes, no. you know, uh, certainly not. So I think that, uh, to your point, you know, that sort of grounded view of what actually is possible, uh, c- can be that inspiring force, you know, I think, uh, for that young, maybe teenager, whatever that goes to the movie theater with their family and sees the Martian or, you know, is watching the expanse on Amazon or whatever. Uh, maybe that is an impetus to get into that field because they want to solve those problems. And I think keeping it grounded like that, um, it does, it, it, it makes it more of a challenge as opposed to, oh, well, that's really cool. But how realistic is that? You know, is, is that based in reality? Uh, we appreciate a lot of media that, that goes for that side as well. Not to detract from that. Cause I think a lot of stuff is awesome, right? That's some of our favorite stuff, but I think um, being grounded in the hard sciences is, uh, or at least trying to be, uh, definitely has value too. Just to piggyback off that, I mean, aside from some of the technology and, and this, the you know vessels that carry them to space, and I mean, just the ingenuity that Mark took while he was stranded, it all seems so feasible. And I know that we had kind of touched on the fact that NASA was involved with the author and the you know filmmakers to ensure that that felt very genuine. But I mean, even that, like, there was nothing fantastical about the way that he survived in that habitat like he literally was harp like he was a botanist right his character was a botanist and he was using what he had learned you know in college or whatever to to ensure that he could stay alive long enough to hope that his friends came back for him like that that's awesome you know and he was doing it on a hostile planet with environment that he wasn't familiar with and soil he knew nothing about and like rationing food and just being very 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 practical and applying things that he had learned, you know, in a, in a college that all of us have attended or a university that, you know, people can go to and learn these things. He was literally doing that, you know, to, to 
stave off death on a planet that he wasn't supposed to be on. Like that part of it is awesome. He didn't have lasers and he didn't have, you know, cool tools that helped him stay alive. I mean, he literally had a spacesuit and a hab that he built and then he was harvesting potatoes to eat and drinking, you know, wastewater that was recycled. Like all of that seems very realistic too. And I thought that that element of it was awesome. And it, it adds like a certain level of tension and suspense in the movie because you know that there's only a finite number of those reasons. Like he doesn't have an unlimited supply of that stuff. And there's, he doesn't have a tool that's going to like keep him alive. He has to just plan and he has to be efficient and effective and he has to make sure that he manages those resources. And that adds like to me personally, when I saw the movie that added a very cool kind of element of suspense in addition to the fact that it was a, you know, hard sci-fi film. Yeah, absolutely. I think those elements too, you know, it's like nerve wracking. I, I think that was the one thing with uh, watching the film and then comparing it with the book. And it's been years and years since I read the book, but I, I kind of, it came back to me as I was watching the the movie and it's like, there, there's even more catastrophic things that happen in the book. And I almost feel like I wasn't even mad that they didn't try to like show the Rover flipping over in the crater and like all that stuff. Totally. Cause it was, it was enough. Like they, I think really, they kept it grounded, kept it realistic. Also, you know, you felt the stakes. They, they kind of included all the big things. Like I remember when I read, a, you know, the, the airlock blowing up, that was just like so heart wrenching. And then seeing that again, I knew it was coming. Right. But sure. seeing that again uh, on the screen was like, oh, cause you know, like the stakes could not be higher. Right. And he was achieving one, a certain level of slip. success at that point. You know, he yeah. was kind of in a groove and then you just, Yes, I felt the same way. I thought they they included enough to tell the story, which was awesome, you know. They definitely yeah. kept it moving. Yeah, and it was very faithful, you know. Apart from that, I think that the key thing for Ridley Scott and the rest of the filmmakers to really nail was the vibe, you know, that vibe of desolation, yep. but also it being uh, this kind of starkly realistic um at, like atmosphere, I guess, and setting, right? It 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 really felt grounded in a way where i think it supported the story and it didn't feel like they took too many liberties with it or whatever i think like you said earlier matt it was very um translated very much from the page to the screen almost exactly how i'd imagined it and that's probably the highest compliment i could pay it uh, as far as being an adaptation so i thought that was great absolutely um so Kind of shifting over to Ridley Scott, um, because I do want to talk about him a little bit here. Uh, To me, he is one of the, I'm going to say, most interesting directors in Hollywood. uh, And that's purely because of his inconsistency, I would say. Um, Because this man has created some of our favorite science fiction projects of all time. You know, we're going back in the day, like uh, he did uh, The Alien. He did uh, Blade Runner. Um, and then he, you know, he kind of fell into his, uh, sand and sandals period. Um, I was like, but he also did. <laughs> there's yeah, a, there's yeah. a pretty ugly um, list. Oh uh, uh, yeah. That's the thing is he's so inconsistent. Like there was just a lot of shit where it's like, Ridley Scott, was that you? Did you make that? What are you doing, man? Um, but it just blows my mind that he came like literally the year before this, he made that Exodus gods and Kings movie which was like a completely whitewashed, like Egyptian mythology based inspired movie. It's like, what the, yeah. and then he comes back and makes this. Well, it's like, Oh my God. Well, it's weird. Yeah. So if you look at that, I mean, you know me, I'm always flying the flag for Ridley Scott. Um, I, I think, you know, part of that being that he really, and I know, you know, uh, if Ben were on this podcast, we'd be going at it. Right. But the big thing for me with Ridley Scott is there's a lot of nostalgia tied to my perception of his uh, output just because he's had a hand in some of my favorite films and properties of all time. You know, Alien, love it. Blade Runner, love it. To me, I always go back to Gladiator because Gladiator is probably one of my top three films of all time. I love Gladiator. Love it. Great memories associated with that movie. So, you know, to me, I think there's that factor of like, rooting for the director almost and i think that's how the the 2010s for me uh were with ridley scott i think prometheus you know was really exciting and obviously that movie has got things that are good about it it's got all sorts of flaws exodus gods and kings was just utter hot trash i thought i went and saw that in the theaters with my dad and we were both like uh 
(laughs) you know but then after that he directs this and and granted i didn't see this the first six or seven years that this movie existed but this was great so it's like prometheus was an okay movie right visually obviously stunning exodus gods and kings same thing visually very stunning but the story was just not not good you know didn't didn't really appreciate that interpretation he was trying to do comes back with this blockbuster hit right tons of money at the box office every critical you know um uh if not award nomination for you know directing and everything else like that and then kind of goes on to what i think it was like alien covenant after this <laughs> yep. which i hated i thought that that was one of the worst you know of anything right so it's just really it's interesting it's like the uh the way that he's picking and choosing his projects seems like very much a late career kind of whatever yeah what? i'm gonna go back to blade runner now what? i'm gonna go back to alien now whatever but then he's still the quality is still there right he can still do something like this it's just really weird man i don't know and you know like uh the last the movies he did last year the last duel i didn't see but i heard it was a a, a pretty good film by all accounts uh and then i actually did end up going seeing house of gucci and i was like okay it wasn't um didn't blow my socks out of the water. I think anyone, any director could have made that movie. But uh, now he's got another big production coming up called Napoleon, which is going to be uh, about Napoleon. Napoleon, so. yeah. That looks pretty cool. But it's kind of like, it, you know, with all the references that we're making about Ridley Scott, honestly, I feel like another thing that we can all very much relate to is it's just like, like Metallica, right? Everybody worships those early records and they know they can still do it. And they occasionally shit the bed or misstep and everybody's bummed. But then you hear a song or a part or even if it's just a melody and it just shows that they can still do it. And I feel like Ridley Scott at this point has established himself enough to where whatever he wants to do, he can do. He's going to do. He's not always going to do it well, but I I think that he's probably got a bunch of good movies left in the tank. And I think that we'll see that every once in a while he's going to hit a home run and then he's going to make a, a, you know, a misstep and or but to him, it doesn't matter. You know, he's kind of his name is cemented. His reputation is cement. Like he's gonna take chances. I think more so now than he ever would before. And we just have to be there for the good ones and ride out the crappy yeah. ones. Well, and that's the thing too. I, I think um, to me with Ridley Scott, you could tell that that's a dude who really enjoys his craft because he has absolutely no reason to be making movies at the clip he's making them. He's no. not a young a young dude. I think he's probably pushing 80 now if he isn't already there. He's been making movies, you know, on this 3-year cycle for his entire career. Has some of the the best of all time, some of the goats in his roster, right? He could very easily have retired, you know, 20 years ago and just kind of gone off into the sunset. But to his credit, even though he's not hitting every time, um, he's still making movies and like, that's cool. You know, I think that that just kind of goes to like him. He enjoys it. I think he enjoys the process of it. He enjoys, uh, in some cases, adapting material or working with whatever, you know, I know he's very, um, notoriously a very visual filmmaker. So I could totally see him doing his Ridley Scott little sketches of, you know, Mark Watney in the Hab and, the. Uh, the, uh, you know, Rover going over dunes on Mars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and being really hands-on with that process. So I feel like when it all hits and comes together, you get The Martian. You get this great film that kind of encompasses all of what makes Ridley Scott such a great visual storyteller. Um, and all those other kind of missteps aside, uh, when, when he really puts his mind to it and has the right folks involved. And I think, just my thought, the right kind of producer... To kind of tell him like when enough is enough, right, or, just you to know, rein he, it in, you know, like somebody to yeah, guide, somebody him, to guide him. Yeah, he needs a little yeah. bit of that structure. So I just looked Absolutely. it up. He's, eight, he's eighty-four years old. But a, a total side note: take a guess, just a stab at what his net net worth is up t- currently, two thousand twenty-two. Oh God! Nope, don't look. No cheating. But what um, do you think? No, I'm not. I'm just trying to. I don't know. Six hundred million dollars. Say. No, that's what the Martian grossed. No, I'm just kidding. That <laughs> um, I'm probably close to a billion dollars, I would assume. Is the four, 400 million. So oh, a guy okay. with, huh. with a net worth of $400 million does not have to keep making movies. But to Jason's point, he does. Like, you know, every couple yeah, years yeah. there's a new Ridley Scott movie. And so he's, he's working away. He's 84 and he's starting his Napoleon. You know, right, he's, he's yeah, starting right? his... 
historical epic phase. Like he did his yeah. sanded sandals. He did sci-fi. <laughs> right. He did his like, you know, mood kind of pieces or whatever. Now he's doing his historical, his epic. historical sure. epics. Not to mention, I don't it's just keep in mind, this guy also produces and sometimes directs TV as well. Like he's right. He's a busy he's man. Constantly doing his, his thing. Well, good on him, though. Hell yeah. Um, I love Ridley. I always will. Like I said, it's and I was I was happy for him. This was one of those where like knowing that this was a Ridley Scott um, and a Ridley Scott sci fi film that I hadn't seen just for one reason or another. I couldn't tell you guys why it took me seven years to see this movie. But um, at the end of it, when the end credits rolled, I was like, yeah, good yeah, on you, right? Ridley. Yeah, like, fuck yeah. Hell yeah, man. That that almost makes up for Alien Covenant. Not quite, uh, but almost. Yeah. absolutely um so yeah i'm not don't really want to go too much in having to we already talked about what the themes of this movie are right i mean we kind of talked about how that bureaucracy versus the humanity side of things um talked about what isolation ingenuity like i think that's kind of what this movie is about more than anything else um it there's not like any giant philosophical takeaways in my opinion that's not a bad thing though i don't i don't need it to be that well, the, the one thing I did want to add, because um, I think we covered most of the themes, you know, th this film, again, going back to that, uh, that the, the cross section side of it, right, with um, why this was so popular. I think everyone loves a good, like, feel good kind of hero's tale, right? And Mark Watney is the ultimate person to root for. You know, we've already said at length that he's a very relatable character. And obviously, you have Matt Damon kind of filling that role. But I don't know. I thought that, um, you know, he's an easy person to root for and everyone wants to um, kind of see him win in the end. Right. But one of the things that really was interesting to me, and it kind of came across more on the filmed version than it did even in the book, is um, kind of the theme of guilt. You know, that that theme of the, the team that left him behind, specifically the, the commander, you know, that left him behind. And just kind of as a thought experiment, you know, thinking about that, if you or trying to do right by the rest of the team, you have all that responsibility kind of on your shoulders and you leave a man to die. Basically, you, you leave him when he's alive and you kind of condemn him to all this hardship and suffering. You know, it really made, and obviously it's different than how it plays out in the book, but it really made that last scene where they're, um, you know, she's doing the, uh, the EVA or whatever and uh, they kind of embrace or whatever like that. And it's just like such a moment, you know, it was like really heavy because uh, it, it was kind of paying off that. But I thought that um, that theme to me, I don't know, it, it, it came across a lot stronger on the film version than it did even in the book. But I really appreciated that because I think uh, it's, it's hard to even imagine, you know, I mean, especially in that context, that's, that's such a huge weight, I would imagine, if you were in that situation. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. And I think that, well, I, I've been kind of trying to process that part of it a little bit too, because I think that one of the things that I've read that some people maybe don't like a lot about the adaptation is the, the couple of changes towards the end. Um, but I think that that is where the movie element comes in, right? Like you got to tell the story, you have two and a half hours to do it. So how do you create a certain, like, like you said, it comes across, that theme comes across a little bit more it's stronger in the movie but i think that that's probably intentional and i would totally agree i think when you read the book it's easy for them to go on and on and on and get page after page after page about it so it kind of the it seems to dissolve a little bit but it's very intense in the movie because i think they have a much shorter time to tell it and i thought it was done very very well like i i have read both sides of that where some people really don't like the fact that it was modified and other people think that you know i it was a very fitting end and I kind of always defend comic book movies this way. It's it's an artist's interpretation of some of source material, right? It's not, you know, I mean, you don't take the book and then have the characters read the lines from the book. The point is that you take something that you were inspired by or that you enjoyed, and then you mod you make it yours, you know. And I think that this version of it was awesome. I thought the storytelling was great, and I think the that element of drama was important for this movie. And I think if that wasn't there, then it might not have had the same impact as it did. No, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And you can never make everyone happy. There's always going to be someone who prefers it the other way, you know. Um, and I love books. I often think the, the book version, if the book version came first, is always better than the film version, personally. But I don't want to, like, take away from uh, the film version of anything because 
sometimes you have to change it to make it make sense, to make it fit better into like, like you said, you have a limited window to tell a story. Uh, it just wouldn't have hit the same way if they'd done it the exact same way in the book. So, sure. um, I, and oftentimes the author or the writer of the book or the original source material, especially nowadays, is usually there like, yeah, do that. That's fine. That works. You're still serving my story. Do it. So, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, that that's the thing. Like, it's a very simple story in the end. Um, and it it's simple because it's it's really it's a science movie. Obviously, it's fiction because it didn't really happen. Right. But it's a science movie. And it grapples with a lot of things in service to its story and its characters survival, whereas a lot of other science fiction kind of uses that as uh, uses the science stuff as a conceit to maybe ask those questions or say, oh, well, what would happen if, you know, AIs gain sentience or what would happen? And it's more that big philosophical question, like you said, Colin, whereas this, it does ask some very important kind of human questions, but it doesn't do so in a way where, where they re- really are like these big philosophical things to grapple with. It's more it's more grounded than that. It's more real than that because the characters are really grappling with these feelings and emotions like in the moment, you know, they're Mark Watney, I'm sure had a lot of time to sit there and contemplate the nature of existence and what it means to be, you know, alive and blah, 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 and all this stuff. But we really didn't see a lot of that. You saw some of that in uh, his journal entries and everything else like that, but it was mostly, okay, how the fuck do I, you know, harvest enough potatoes to stay alive for another month? Right. (laughs) Because that's got to get home. Yeah. I got to go home. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't didn't really grapple with the pie in the sky as much because it was more worried about the the potatoes growing in the totally. yeah. <laughs> in the Martian soil. You know, can we can we quote that? That's that's perfect. Don't so we're, yeah. don't worry so much about the pie <laughs> in the sky. Worry about the potatoes in the ground. Most, you got it. God, God, can you can you tell we all grew, had, we all grew up blue collared? <laughs> I've, I've had that on my uh, my whiteboard right. for like two yeah. weeks now. That's like oh shit, I got to get that in there somewhere. <laughs> that's funny. you did it, man. You put that on the back of your business cards. It. You're off white (laughs) business cards, you just say. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right, fellas. Well, unless anyone wants to steer this conversation in another direction, uh, I think it's a good point to kind of jump into uh, good sci fi, bad sci fi and give us your final thoughts. Uh, Jason, we'll start with you. Let our our esteemed guests go first with good sci fi, bad sci fi. We'll start with you then. Sure. I I, I don't think I'm at your level of expert expert when it comes to sci-fi my vote good sci-fi i really enjoyed it and i think based on all of my comments throughout the course of the podcast um my final thoughts is i thought it was fantastic you know i I really enjoyed the book i really enjoyed the movie i really enjoyed watching it again you know kind of gearing up for this podcast i had the opportunity to look i I guess be a little more critical you know i went to the movie theater and saw it and enjoyed it and ate popcorn and whatever. But this time I knew I was going to talk about it. So I had a chance to watch it again with a little bit more of a critical lens and it stands up. I I mean, I thought it was a fantastic film, good sci-fi, very enjoyable, would totally recommend it. Even to somebody who doesn't think they like sci-fi movies, this is a very palatable, approachable movie that is a sci-fi movie. Perfect. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. All right, Jason, what do you think? Yeah, no, I'd echo a lot of what Matt said. I think, you know, that 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 was the key thing to me is uh, this is it's great sci-fi. It's a great movie, but what makes it great is that it's so accessible. It's it's not a, a very you know hard barrier for entry here. You don't have to be into some weird esoteric cyberpunk you know space opera anything. It, it's very grounded. I I said probably said that if I said it once, I said it thirty times this podcast. It's very grounded, and uh, the the message is very much kind of centered around what's feasible, what's plausible. Um, and I think that main theme of a human, a lone human in this case, kind of overcoming these seemingly just incalculable odds of uh, how, you know, if we were on Mars, right, none of us are going to survive. No, not a chance. <laughs> no way. Um, even if we had our little three ring binder with the survival manual, right, like he does, like none of us would survive because I couldn't even figure out uh, ASCI language, let alone, you know, set up a Martian lander to well, you know communicate because we all went to but, school for liberal arts degrees but <laughs> exactly you got it so yeah i i just think that that's definitely a strength of the property um i'm excited at some point to dive into more of andy weir's uh properties you know his books because 
I, I think, you know, if he kind of has continued to ride this line that he uh, developed with the Martian, um, I think, you know, he obviously, I know it's already been about a decade since that book came out, but I think he's got a very bright future ahead of him in, uh, in this sphere. So yeah, great. Recommend it. Um, don't wait on it like I did, you know, if you haven't seen it or are interested in it, I would say see it, but I would also recommend to any potential listeners out here that haven't engaged with the Martian at all, read the book first. I told Jess that Jess has not read the book or seen the movie and she wanted to watch it with me. And I told her, no, the way she reads books, I was like, you can read it in two hours, you know, (laughs) read the book and then watch the movie. So I would definitely just do that. So that way you kind of compare. But I think this is one where both of the, you know, the original source material and the adaptation are strong enough and stand enough on their own um, and then complement each other together that I, I would definitely recommend both. Totally. I would say read the book, watch the movie, listen to this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, don't start with this podcast. Right. If you start yeah, with, don't this start podcast, with this podcast, what the fuck is wrong with you? No, uh, okay. So he makes it. He lives. Yeah, he survives. Sorry, Uh-oh. guys. <laughs> oh shit! Uh, Gotta cut that out. Um, no. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Um, there's not much else for me to say aside from what you guys said. I, I think you both hit that um, that science fiction nail on the head. Uh, I thought it was great sci-fi. I, I think it's a great movie. Um, I hope to see more, uh, not only from Andy Weir and from Ridley Scott, but I would also like to just see more from the industry in general uh, approaching science fiction in this matter, because I think this helps inspire people to go out there and do the damn thing and make that near future a reality. Um, uh, I still want to see the Dunes and you know the Blade Runners, and I want to see you know Alien Covenant Part Nine. I don't, well, not that specifically, but. Uh, I want to see all that shit, but I also, I want this to happen more and more frequently. And, uh, uh, gentlemen, I think what we all need to do is we need to go into his next book, uh, that came after this, the Artemis one. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I haven't I, read anything else either and I'm totally for it. I was going to piggyback off that statement by Jason. Like, I, I don't know why I haven't, but I, I'm totally going to um, probably pick I, that I heard up good and, things and I've yeah. even like read reviews by, um, like notable, like science fiction writers of our time. And like some of them were just like, man, it's okay. If you like hard sci-fi, you're going to love it. But I'm just like, well, fuck you then. Yeah, okay, I'm going to well, love perfect. it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, it's on the bookshelf upstairs. Um, one of 4,000 books up there that either has or hasn't been read. So uh, yeah, maybe at some point we'll dive into it. I've I've started reading again and a lot of what I'm reading is sci-fi. You know, I've got a, a bedside book. So I've been trying to to dive in. So maybe that'll be one of those uh, that I'll I'll visit here at some point soon. Awesome. All right, folks. Well, there you have it. That is our take on uh, 2015 The Martian. Uh, Hopefully we can come back at you down the road and cover some more Andy Weir material. I would certainly love to. Matthew, thank you for being on the podcast. It's kind of taken the long route to to get us here. I think we planned this back in like December or something or talked about it that far back. But uh, then we had the issues last week, but we finally got it knock on wood yeah um, thanks for having me guys this is a lot of fun yeah and i'd love to yeah, love to get thanks. you back on in the future sometime kind of keep Definitely. a rotating cast of of friends and family getting on here i think it'll be fun so all right folks until next time